Hey everybody, thanks for tuning into the Scripturally Discerned podcast. I want to just make a really brief note before we begin this segment. This is the first chapter of Leviticus, our study in Leviticus, um, following introduction. So this is the second segment. Now my plan was to put this on the Exposition Expedition Leviticus podcast. And it is there right now along with... um, the third episode, but it's come to my attention that uh, the the new channel has not been distributed to all the platforms. So it may be that you've tried to get on there on your platform and wasn't able to do that. It will be in the very near future on there. I don't have control over that exactly. They, they do that for me. Um, but until that time, until I, I recognize that that's going to take place, which usually is done by now, so we'll see. It should be should be done very shortly. I'm going to go ahead and post this uh, second episode that actually goes into the book of Leviticus. I'm going to post it on our main channel here, but please do um, continue to look for it on your platform and the actual Exposition Expedition Leviticus channel. But thank you for tuning in, and I hope this is enjoyable today. Welcome to Exposition Expedition Leviticus, a verse-by-verse study of the book. Welcome to the Spiritually Discerned Podcasts, Leviticus Study, the Laws of the Offering. And today we're going to do our first segment. The first segment is the Burnt Offering. Let me grab my Bible because I know I'm going to leave need it. But as we do, let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, which says, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, I want to stop there right off the bat. What a blessing that God delights in using human vessels like Moses, but he also uses us. Though the the book of Leviticus is going to lay out ample evidence of man's sin and the fact that our imperfections are so vast that these sacrifices, this whole system was needed in order to even approach God, he nonetheless desires fellowship with us. Of course, this fellowship is conditional. It's determined by the quality of the offering here in Leviticus as it's described and the desire of the worshiper to give it. Man has a free will. We can choose whether or not we want to commune with God. At the same time, he chooses how he will commune with God. We must remember always that we should desire to worship God, but there are certain parameters to true worship. And in the introduction, I talked about Jesus in John chapter 4 and how um, he was talking about the way to worship God. And God's acceptance of our worship and our participation in worship are conditional upon these facts. God's looking for both diligence and desire in our worship. John 4, 24, God's seeking those to worship him in spirit And in truth, our heart is supposed to be there, but we have to do it by the parameters that God gives us as well. We want to be true worshipers. The voluntary nature of worship is seen in the offerings as the word 
will is coupled with the offering giver. When it comes down to it, worship is an act of the will. We determine whether or not we're going to worship God or not. We determine whether or not we're going to accept his, his son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. We determine whether or not we're going to follow and believe God's word. It's a free will situation. In Leviticus, the Lord of the universe is speaking to his human leader, Moses, a message that he wants his faithful servant to bring to the people. In turn, he is speaking to us through his written word thousands of years after these events took place. We read many letters that we receive in the mail with a lot of anticipation. But how much more anticipation should we have reading God's personal letters to us that are found in his word? These timeless truths that have been preserved by him throughout the ages. It's truly amazing that God would stoop to such a level as to commune with sinners, isn't it? The name of God in Scripture takes many forms, but here in verse 1, the title LORD, all caps, is Yahweh, meaning self-existent one, or the eternal God. This is the title that God used earlier with Moses when he pronounced himself as I Am in Exodus 3.14. This is also the name that the Jewish nation called her God, and occurs more than any other name of God in the Old Testament with 6,823 references. God is self-existent and eternal. He was never created and therefore does not need any outside agency to help him continue to exist. He is self-existent. He is also over all of his creation. And yet he created man for the purpose of fellowship and to receive glory from those who in exercising their own free will choose to do so. This is the reason why he created Moses. The children of Israel which would worship him, many of which would worship him, and every believer since that time. The Israelites had wandered but God still desired to have fellowship with his own. And this same God is the God that desires a similar relationship with us in our day. Do we honor him with our lives? Are we listening to his message to us? God had been speaking, as I said before, out of Mount Sinai to Moses, but now his glory has descended to the tabernacle. God's desire all along the way was to commune with his people, but his holiness demanded certain requirements, and it's because of who God is. God cannot look upon sin because of his purity of nature, his holiness. Just as Moses could not look God in the face because of God's holiness, a holy God cannot look upon sinful man and draw near unto him. So there has to be a plan for this to take place, a plan that would eventually find fruition in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Temporarily, though, the sacrificial system would be instituted, as Leviticus prescribes, until the fullness of time would bring Jesus to Bethlehem and then on to Calvary. 
while the Mariah, while the Messiah tarried, the Levitical offering system pointed towards his coming, which was for Moses and the children of Israel still in the distant future. For us, we look back upon that time. We look back on that event. Moses and the people of Israel looked forward. What an advantage it is to us to be able to look back and analyze these things more closely, having all the information at our disposal. Not to say that we have all the revelation of God. There's going to be many things that um, you know have still not been revealed at this point. The Bible says that if all the things that Jesus did while he was on this earth, that, that, the, that the world could not contain the books that would be written. And so there's, we're going to spend eternity finding out all these little details. But for, for us living here in the 21st century, the foreshadows of Christ's offering in those first fundamental forms are apparent. And it's a blessing for those who have received the promised Messiah to look back now and glimpse the image of Jesus Christ, the shadow, you could say, in the Levitical sacrificial system. That brings us to the first offering, which is the burnt offering. Now, this can be found in Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 17, with more information given in chapter 6, verse 8 through 13, and then also in chapter 7, verse 8. So let's, let's examine this offering as we move down from verse 1 to verse 2 and verse 3, which is written there. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. Let's look at, first of all, the prerequisites of the offering. The prerequisites of the offering. And first of all, under that, it had to be a personal offering. It had to be a personal offering. Now, a lot of what we'll talk about in the burnt offerings will apply to the other offerings and the greater context and content of the book itself. So this one, the burnt offering, this first offering look at, has some additional information that applies to the others. It had to be a personal offering. Though perhaps they were not on the same level as gold and silver, nonetheless, the animals in a man's flock or herd were of extremely high value to him. It's noteworthy that one of these animals that was in his personal possession is what is demanded for the offering. It had to be a personal offering. So the animal was chosen. The animal chosen was sacrificed. And this sacrifice came, we could say, literally at the owner's expense. We could apply it this way. It cost a man something to serve and honor the Lord. It did not come cheap. Even the word sacrifice implies something that is costly. So this is personally applicable to us as believers for two reasons. First, because it reveals the responsibility on behalf of the believer who would choose to serve the Lord. Second, it puts into focus the price that the Savior Jesus Christ paid for the sins of all mankind. Salvation comes at an extremely high price to our Savior. Not with money or with treasures, not with a commitment of works, but with his own blood. Christ paid the highest price, his very life, to purchase redemption for mankind. We must be motivated to serve him faithfully. If he paid such a high price for our salvation, how can we refuse to surrender all, if necessary, to him 
once we've received this precious gift of salvation. So you look at this offering and you think, okay, they had to take something of their own flock, something that cost them. It was an investment for them, a sacrifice. But it really wasn't that much to, com to compare to what God had done for us. David understood this principle in his own life. When he wished to purchase Arunas' threshing floor in 2 Samuel 24, he did not take advantage of the man's kindness in setting the price. Instead, he keenly noted in verse 24, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. And then David went ahead and proceeded to pay with uh, 50 shekels of silver for the floor and some oxen. David understood the value of a human life as well. He refused to drink water that was brought to him by his faithful servants of the well in Bethlehem during the, during the time of conflict, saying, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Does this not speak to the spirit of our times where life is cheap? We see that all around us. We see it in abortion. We see it in euthanasia, violence on the big and small screen, pornography, human trafficking. Life is treated in many times as cheap. Furthermore, our society promotes an ideology that seeks something for nothing, a philosophy that has completely permeated American culture. Dumbing down of educational standards in public schools, advertisements promising deferred payment. These are normative things. While commitment, service, and holiness are quickly becoming dusty traditions. We should have services to those who are poor and those who are in need and widows and so on. That's a biblical mandate. But have we not become a sort of welfare society? Don't, don't we have too, easy way, too easily of ways to, to uh, receive help when, when we can do things ourselves? A lot of times that seems to be the case. And oftentimes that means those who are neglected are those that are in real need. Even Christians today in churches have lost sight of the fact that service and worship are required at personal expense. When we think of Christ's sacrifice, we must also consider the Father's price. It cost God everything to pay the ransom for our sins as he watched his only begotten Son, in whom he was well pleased, die on a cruel tree. A further teaching brought out by the offering system is that it speaks of the fact that not only was the sacrifice required to be personal, it had to be personalized. And what I mean by that is identification had to be made by the offerer with the offering. We see that in verse 4. In the New Testament, Rome, Romans 6.4 reminds us that we are buried with Christ. It's not only personal, it's personalized. That's what salvation is. We must identify personally with what Christ has done for us or we miss salvation entirely. It's not enough to simply believe what Christ did. The Bible says the devil believes and trembles, but we have to apply it. And that was a big part of the Levitical system was the application of the blood and so on, which we'll look at later on. We make a deadly mistake 
when we understand, believe, and maybe even be emotionally moved, but do not apply what Christ did to our life. Perhaps it's pride, could be indifference, or could simply be delay that's the culprit. Nonetheless, salvation is rejected. It had to be a personal offering. It also had to be a particular offering. There were standards for which offering could be given. And we're going to look at each of these animals that's, um, that's given here and what they represent. It had to be a particular animal. The first animal we want to look at is the bull, the bullock mentioned in verse 5. And I believe these animals, each one of these, speak to a different aspect of Christ's character and identity. The bullock in verse 5 speaks to Christ the servant. The Israelites realized what farmers know well today. The bull or the ox is a working animal. It's an animal of labor. They know nothing but labor, in fact. They are servant animals, if you will. They're most useful for the grueling work of farming beneath a blazing sun because of their faithful obedience to their master. This is the existence that they know. They readily accept their burden, then obey the master's every command. Jesus Christ came as a servant, one who would faithfully bear the burden of sin, feel the heavy weight of it pressed against his shoulders. Hebrews 12, 2 in verse 3 tells us that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He took that labor on, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The idea there being that he took willingly that burden. He willingly took the shame. The verse goes on, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your own minds. Christ willingly took the yoke of sin, putting himself under it. He endured this. He endured the contradiction which speaks of the strife that came against him. He took this cursed yoke upon himself. And this is symbolized so well when you visualize Jesus carrying his own cross like a beam, like a yoke on his back. Similar size and shape and material. And how he stumbled under that. Boy, he looked like that servant, didn't he? He looked like that ox, that strong servant taking the burden of sin. God wants us also to be ox-like in our faith, enduring, serving, laboring for Christ's sake and in Christ's servant service. I'm sorry. This is exactly the message he tried to bring out in the upper room when he humbly set about washing the disciples' feet. You can find that in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Peter, do you remember? Peter kind of opposed that. You're not going to wash my feet. <laughs> but we have to be ready to be servants, and we have to take Christ's example of servant, service for us. Matthew 11, verse 29 and 30, reveals that Christ had this yoke, just like an ox, and expects us to do likewise though he will never ask us to do what he has done, not to that extent. He says there, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice two distinct points about this yoke that we as servants of Christ need to be reminded of. That the yoke is easy. I would say there, it's bearable. And it's taken up voluntarily. We all have a solemn duty as believers to take up our cross, but we must not worry too much. The yoke is bearable. We can do it. Christ will not give us more than we can handle, though sometimes it may feel very contrary to that. What is the yoke of which Christ spoke? And I know I'm going a little bit off on a tangent, but this is all biblical stuff, and I think it's helpful. What's the yoke of which he spoke? It is first the yoke of sin. This is the only yoke, and I'm talking specifically of the yoke that Christ took up. This is the only yoke of the three which Christians cannot take up. It's too heavy for us to bear. Only Christ could take up the weight of the world's sin upon himself and pay redemption's price. Still, we can and should take up the yoke, the burden of temptations. We must endure those. We must not fall under the weight of temptation and give in to sin. The weight of temptations will never be too heavy for us to bear, even though I know it seems like that at times. There are certain temptations that seem like they're crushing and we give in to them. But he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see that there? The temptations that come our way are bearable. We don't have to give in to them. We can endure them. Carrying the yoke of sin is something quite different. God alone could carry that yoke for us. But in doing so, when Christ carried the burden for us and he took on the weight of sin on the cross, that gave us the power to be able to endure temptation. The yoke of sin, the yoke of the law is another thing. Christ had to fulfill the legal requirements of the law. That was a yoke that he took himself under, put himself under. He had, for example, to be part of the regal Davidic line. And Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17 tell us that he was. He fulfilled that. He had to obey the regulations binding the priesthood. Christ gave testimony to the fact that he had come to fulfill the law in Matthew 5, 17. This carries the idea of satisfying or finishing it, not destroying it, but fulfilling it. Though we live in the dispensation of grace, we are called to obey the law. Though many would say the law today is of no value, Paul states plainly that without the law, we would not know what sin is. Romans 3.20, Romans 7.7. 7. Likewise, we do not know righteousness without the law. A well-balanced approach to what the law means, its foundations and its purposes and applications in our life, allows a wise believer to labor under the yokes that God has put us under. Legalism on one side and license on the other threaten our balance 
putting undue weight on either side. We are not to embrace legalism and say, oh, the law has, it has everything to do with salvation. We have to keep the law to be saved. That's the extreme on one side. The extreme on the other side is license, which totally abandons the law, especially its applications. And that's what we're doing now as we look through the book of Leviticus. We can see the insight that the law, the legal requirements, the Levitical system, how it applies to our life. That's what we're talking about even right now. There is an application. There is a message that's spoken to us out of the law. Even though we live in the dispensation of grace, the law does have application to us in teaching us many secure truths. Legalism, on the other hand, entraps people by making the law the source of righteousness, Galatians 2.21, while license makes the law a complete non-factor, Romans 6.1 and 2. The balanced biblical approach treats the law as a guideline, though at the same time we understand that it is impossible to keep the law, Romans 3.31. Perhaps we can summarize all this by saying that one cannot be righteous without the law, while one can be unrighteous with it as well. The law does not save us. The law condemns us. And so maybe that's the primary teaching right there we look to is the law is the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. We need Christ because of the law. But we need the law because it shows the holy standards of God. And by grace, we, we implement these uh, pursuits in our own life. It tells us so much that we need to know. We are faulty, sinful beings. And the law tells us that. Praise the Lord for the grace of God. And if you want to see the relationship between the law and the believer, that relationship, then Romans is a great resource to, to use. I would also point you to um, Galatians, those two being primary books. We also have the yoke of the flesh. Paul felt the burden of the flesh when he wrote, I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For that I would do, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. Kind of going back and forth, right? And, that, and that's in Romans uh, 7, verse 14 and 15. Isn't that the way that life feels like? Oh, I don't want to sin and I end up sinning. And then I want to serve God and I don't serve God. So it's like I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. And that's why we need grace. We need grace both in its forgiving aspect as well as its encouragement that he gives us as well. That we can continue on striving for the Lord despite the flesh. Christ put himself under the yoke of the flesh, constraining himself. 1 Timothy 3.16. The yoke of the flesh. Jesus also put himself under the yoke of the Father's will. Now when, a this would apply to us as disciples, when someone became a disciple of another, they called it, among other things, putting being put under the yoke of that instructor so that the instructor would give them all of this instruction to do and they'd have to follow through. Think of like the movie The Karate Kid, where the Karate Kid... <laughs> 
um, I don't remember his name, but he had to train under Miyagi. And Miyagi gave him all these tasks to do. Now, a lot of times it seemed like the tasks were purely menial, maybe punitive, and maybe just for the interests of the master, like waxing the car. But later on, it was revealed that, hey, this, this all served a purpose. And I think that's a good way to look at God's instruction for us. A lot of times, it seems like the things that we do are pointless and meaningless. Why do I have to do this? Or they're inefficient. Or they don't have any kind of result. But we still have to tarry in those things. We have to still continue. Even the idea of patience in the Bible, in the New Testament, has the idea of patiently enduring and actively enduring things. Jesus came under the yoke of the Father's will. He said as much when his parents found him in the temple, ministering and teaching the teachers. In Luke 2.49, he said, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? That was the yoke that he had, his father's business, his father's will. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful to his earthly parents, but to state a fact that should have kept them from undue alarm and concern when they couldn't find him. Later, Jesus said, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And even when you come to Golgotha and Calvary, the the cross, the, 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 the dim prospect he had that he talked about in Gethsemane, about separation from the Father, Jesus' words, nevertheless, not what I will, but thou, but what thou wilt. Mark 14, 36. Christians should be ashamed when we put our own prior priorities, our purposes, or privileges before that of the Father's. If Christ's attitude was Father, God first, how much more should ours be? That's what we get in the bullock, Christ the servant. Verse 10, we see another animal appropriate for the burnt offering, and that's the sheep. This speaks of Christ the substitute. Among other things, when Jesus Christ died on Calvary, he became our substitute. And the sheep speaks of the substitute for the sinner. It points ultimately to the substitutionary atonement of Christ at Calvary. John described this being the... um, John the Baptist described Jesus aptly in John 1:29 as the lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. The prophet Isaiah also pictured Christ in that imagery when he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb or silent so he openeth not his mouth. And we saw this fulfilled when Jesus stood before Pilate. Jesus chose this. Jesus chose to be the Lamb of God, this sheep that was the substitute for man. Jesus took the place of every man when he offered himself upon the cross of Calvary. Ironically enough, the man Barabbas, the seditionist, Um, who Jesus literally took the place of, that word Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, or Abba, means son of the Father. Truly the son of the Heavenly Father, 
took the place of every son of the earthly father, son of the devil, on, that has ever lived. And this is the glorious message wrapped up in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, the substitute. We see Jesus Christ, the, the servant, the substitute. And in the goat in verse 10, we see Jesus Christ, the sin bearer. So the sheep, when you think of sheep, you think of the purity of Christ's sacrifice. When you think of the goat, you think of something different. And this is really Jesus Christ identifying not just with sinners, but taking on sin. The goat in scripture pictures the sinner or the one who is without God. This is evidenced in the sheep and goat judgment that will take place after the tribulation period that's discussed in Matthew 25, verse 33. This is when the redeemed and the lost will be separated, the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. The Bible speaks clearly of the fact that though Christ knew no sin, he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So we realize that Christ was forsaken of God, not because of himself, but because of the sins that he put upon himself. You talk about identifying with sinners. That just barely scratches the surface. Jesus faced the judgment of God as the sin bearer. As such, he faced the judgment that we would have faced when he died on Calvary. This is made evident in other scriptures, like 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a beautiful verse. Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We're told in both the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 12, and in the New Testament, Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, that Christ was numbered with the transgressors, talking about his identification. In Luke 23, 33, we see this identification, where we read that Jesus was crucified with the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Sinners. We know one was a thief who spoke to Jesus and got saved while they both hung on crosses. To complete the picture, we see in Hebrews 10, verse 4 through 10, and Leviticus and Hebrew are sister scriptures, one in the Old and one in the New Testament, but they go together, they fit together. They should be probably studied together, starting with Leviticus and then going to Hebrews. In Luke 23, I'm sorry, in Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 10, we see Christ compared to the burnt offerings of Leviticus as a goat. For it is not possible that the blood of sheep and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come... In the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. 
Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish the second, by the which we are all sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then we have the fourth animal, the last one we're going to talk about. And I'll review the other ones real quick before we do that. We have the bullock in verse 5, Christ the servant. We have the sheep in verse 10, Christ the substitute. We have the goat in verse 10, picturing Christ the sin bearer. And then lastly, we have the fowl or Christ the sinless one in verses 14 through 17. So Christ is pictured as the sinless one in the offering of the pigeon or the turtle dove, the fowl. The pigeon and turtle dove pictures the absolute poverty of the sinner. These birds being the smallest offering allowed amongst the animal offerings. It was an offering that was given by the poor that could not afford a sheep or a bullock. The pigeon and turtle dove could be offered only by those who could not afford an ox, lamb, or a goat. And this speaks of the spiritual reality of destitution, spiritual destitution. In the Beatitudes, Jesus emphasized the fact that those who were poor in spirit were blessed, Matthew 5.3. In making such a statement, he was not trying to give some undue honor or endorsement of those who were physically destitute by choice or even by circumstance, but he was making an application to those who find themselves without anything spiritually speaking. Because those who have nothing spiritually, they have nothing, are those who are ready to turn to God and come to God. Those who come to Christ must see their need for him. Without a poverty of spirit, one will never see his or her need for Jesus Christ, let alone believe that he is the way of salvation. The doves and pigeons in the Levitical offering system reminds us of our true state of dependence upon God, whether or not we want to readily admit to that need. So the fowl as an offering, the turtle dove and the pigeon as an offering pictured the poverty of the sinner but it also speaks of purity the turtle dove has long been a symbol of innocence and love what better picture of christ is our sacrifice for sins than the turtle dove and pigeon only a pure snow white sacrifice will please a righteous god and jesus was that perfect sacrifice. Finally, the fowl speaks of peace. The dove has long been a picture of peace. That picture carried over from Moses releasing the dove from the ark and seeing it return with an olive branch in its beak. The end of judgment. The flood was a judgment. Peace came after judgment. Just as the dove was the messenger of the reality that judgment was over and a new life awaited, Jesus Christ comes with just such a message. One other thing that I want to say, and it's fulfilled in Christ about the offering, 
the burnt offering animals, is that the animal noted here had to be a male. Why is this an important part of the process? Ultimately, the male animal sacrifice in the Levitical offerings points to the death of God's son, specifically his son, the prophesied one, Jesus Christ. Because we are inherently sinners, having received the sin nature from the first male, and this is, a, this is something that men have to understand, that men and women have received the sin nature through the first Adam, the first man, the first Adam. We need the liberating blood of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to cleanse us from all sins. The perfect offering for sins, among other things then, would of would of necessity be male. So that concludes the the four different kinds of animals. It had to be a particular personal offering. We talked about it being a personal offering, we talked about it being a particular offering. Next, it had to be a perfect offering. It had to be a perfect offering. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us that we are not redeemed by corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of this perfect offering of which the animals simply were types he was truly without blemish. God has the same desire for his church. Ephesians 5.27 Talking about the destiny of God's people that is to be one that he presents to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. Notice that the animals were the ones um, that were the ones acceptable for the offering. They were all domesticated and considered clean animals by Jehovah God. This points to the fact that offerings were to be pure, not wild or unclean. You know, we didn't have donkeys here. We didn't have those who were those animals which were ceremonially unclean to be offered. They had to conform to God's exacting specifications. Likewise, our worship is to be perfect in every aspect as the sacrifice of the Israelites had to be without blemish. That should be our desire. We make a grave error when we discount or ignore flaws in worship and in lifestyle. If we just say, oh, well, I know I've got this little area that's at fault. And I'm not talking about circumstantial sin, you know, but I'm talking about things that we overlook. Oh, I've got certain vices in my life. Get rid of those vices. We, we have to get rid of those things. Not to say we'll never sin or that we'll never sin in those certain areas because we might. In fact, we certainly will sin at times, but not to overlook those areas, those flaws in our spiritual life and kind of discount them or ignore them. The reliance of grace over law only exonerates the dedicated, honest believer. 
We can't we can't claim oh grace. Grace, grace. It's like Paul said. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How will we who are dead to sin continue any longer therein? Those who are unwilling to deal with their own impediments to worship and to a worshipful lifestyle will not recover until we come to terms with our own sinful attitudes. Romans 6 1. We are to strive for Christ's likeness. So the offering that was given in the Levitical system had, had to be perfect, but it also had to be proactive. In other words, Though the Levitical system was designed, implemented, and commanded by God for his people, ultimately these were, as I mentioned earlier, free will offerings that were made. That term is even used there, free will offerings. Notice the word if is found throughout each of these offerings. God never forces us to serve him. We do it of our own volition. God is not trying to create an army of robots but a church of willing, eager servants. This is his design. This is his desire for all of us. Consider the fact that without free will, there would be no rewards to earn. We'd all be doing the same thing, and we'd all be doing it automatically. Why would there be a reward? But God is seeking those that he can call good and faithful servants. It had to be a pleasing offering as well. This is why the offering had to be offered at the door of the tabernacle. The phrase at the door is an interesting phrase that has redemptive significance. Consider Jesus' teaching about doors. What did he say about the subject? He described it as a place of protection, security, and entrance. In the same way, the door to the tabernacle speaks of that which is accepted of God to provide entrance and protection to the person that draws near. The believer can praise the Lord that such a way was provided through the blood of Christ and that the way was described in such detail that we might take comfort in knowing that we have found that entrance to the Father. It's noteworthy to mention that the burnt offering was the only one of the offerings where the sacrifice was completely consumed. We see this uh, in Deuteronomy 33.10 and spoken of in Psalm 51.19. This, of course, speaks of Christ or speaks of God the Father specifically as a consuming fire, burning up all that which does not withstand the fires of his holiness, the trial fires. As the old saying puts it, only what is done for Christ will last. This is, the true, this is true in the areas of one's worship, works, and the way of salvation that, he ch that we choose to take comfort in. So a vital question we must ask ourselves is this. Is our way secure? Is God pleased with the offering that we have chosen to represent our source of security? And I'm talking about your own personal experience with God. Only the offering of Christ will please a holy God. Only Jesus Christ's death on Calvary 
will please him. Everything else falls far short. And that's where we're going to end today on the first offering, the burnt offering, the first part. We'll have the next part in the next segment. I hope this has given you some things to think about, pray about, and I hope it's been um, educational and enlightening for you as we continue forward. I'm very excited about this series that we're going to be doing in the book of Leviticus. It is, despite what sometimes we think on the surface, a profoundly interesting and um, living book that certainly applies to us in our lives today. And so I think you'll find it